Hey everyone and welcome to the first episode of Drew Crime. I'm Drew Van House and I will be the host of this true crime podcast. I really can't begin to say how excited I am to put out a podcast that centers around my obsession, which is really anything true crime material. I would have to say my obsession began with the release of Making a Murder back in December of 2015. It was the story, the characters, the possible corruption of the police, a coarse confession. I mean, this case has everything. Once I started watching, I couldn't stop, and I guess it became this almost kind of addiction that branched off into other documentaries. Then it led into listening to true crime podcasts, and even as far as doing research on cases that seemed to have a puzzling outcome. Then a few people approached me with the idea of doing my own podcast, and I guess that's kind of where the idea came to be. My main focus in this podcast will be on cold cases that remain unsolved to this day, but I will also discuss cases that have been solved, but seem to have a questionable conclusion. Also during this podcast, I do want to give my own opinions and theories on the cases that I talk about, and the new episodes will be released on Sundays. I would have to say that the main reason I am starting this podcast is to get people talking about cases, and just maybe it may lead in answering some unanswered questions. I feel there are many victims and their families that have not been able to seek justice, and I think it's only right to share their stories and keep getting the word out about their cases. With all that being said, I would love to start out this podcast series of one of my favorite cases that I've been following for about a year now, and it's a case about a 12-year-old boy, Garrett Phillips, who was murdered at his home on October 24, 2011, in Potsdam, New York. After I had watched the documentary that aired on HBO called Who Killed Garrett Phillips, I then became extremely interested in this case and had to know more. This case involves the murder of a young boy, a love triangle involving two ex-boyfriends of Garrett's mother, Tandy Cyrus. Messy police work done by the town of Potsdam, race becomes an issue in this case, and there's even prosecutorial misconduct by one of the prosecutors involved in this case. A man by the name of Nick Hillary would have his reputation and image destroyed by becoming a suspect in a boy's murder, while another person of interest, John Jones, would then roam free without very much question. But ultimately, Garrett and his family would never receive the justice they deserved. This case has literally pulled me in every direction, usually just to lead me up to another dead end. I continue my research on this case, and I've now reached the conclusion that there is much more to this story than most people may know, and still, to this day, a killer has not been found for the murder of Garrett Phillips. So please join me as I try to make sense of all the overwhelming evidence and confusion that surrounds this case, and hopefully by exploring new options, it may help lead to new outcomes. This is Drew Crime, Episode 1, Garrett Phillips. It's no disguise, it's no disguise, it makes no sense, it doesn't fit, if it doesn't fit, you must acquit. We're proceeding without you. Since I have been in Dade County, I've been allowed don't to shake your finger at me, young man. Don't shake your finger at me, young man. Man, were you crying when you were shooting him? Were you crying when you were stabbing him? I don't remember. How about when you cut his throat? Were you crying then? I don't know. So take a look then. Now, before I do get into this case, 
I do want to remind everyone that the research that I've done has helped me base my own opinions and theories of what may have happened during this murder. I'm in no way of accusing anyone of any wrongdoing, just simply putting evidence into a possible theory that may have a plausible outcome. I also will have all my sources listed via Twitter at hashtag DrewCrime and Facebook at Facebook.com slash DrewCrime. And I can also be reached by email, and that's at DrewCrimePodcast at gmail.com. And you may also listen to my episodes through a podcast called Anchor, or simply listen to the episodes on the web using anchor.fm slash DrewCrime. The narrative of this case has been simple. It's about 30 minutes in Potsdam. It was around 5 o'clock. I got a phone call. Something's happened to Garrett. I have both units on scene with an unresponsive 10-year-old male. The scene was handled as a crime scene. The mother is Tandy Cyrus. Tandy's ex-boyfriend, Nick Hillary, was suspicious. Garrett didn't like it. Those two butted heads. We have a strong suspect at this point. You're the sex the relationship. You've got some problems. Hillary is responsible for Garrett's death. No doubt in my mind, he did it. Nick Hillary. 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 Next the guy. I'm 100% certain. Am I living in a dream right now, or this is really happening? As a person of color, you're told, don't talk to the police. Nick called me saying, the cops won't let me leave. You don't strip search someone naked for anything. You do have to raise questions as to why they chose Nick Hillary. He's right out of a movie, Nick's dating the sheriff's ex-girl. You have John Jones holding Tandy's hand. There have been theories that Garrett had been horsing around with friends. Those theories are pushed aside. There's no match for the DNA, nothing tying Nick to the crime. Prosecutors don't want to solve this case. They want to get a conviction. To tell you I'm scared would be an understatement. Either Nick Hillary did this or someone else did this. Either one of those options are frightening. All right, so that last clip was the trailer for the documentary Who Killed Garrett Phillips, which originally aired on HBO last summer. The documentary is very well done and gives the audience a great detailed story on this case. The two-part series Who Killed Garrett Phillips was directed by Liz Garbus, and she's also responsible for other true crimes such as There's Something Wrong with Aunt Diane, an episode on The Innocence Files, and is also responsible for the recently successful Lost Girls that is featured on Netflix, and that movie is tied to the Long Island serial killer, which to this day has never been caught. Now, before I get into the story of Garrett's murder, I do want to say that throughout this case, I decided to not only look at the evidence, but also really pay attention to how people were behaving throughout the course of this case. I know that everyone deals with tragedy in their own way, but some of the behaviors from the victim's family has really led me to believe that some people may know more than they're leading on. To this day, Garrett's family isn't even looking for a killer in his murder, and I just find it very strange that they just gave up on finding justice for Garrett. So I'm going to go ahead and start with the story of the day of Garrett's murder. Then I'm going to backtrack and tell you how this all started and how it led up to the day of Garrett's murder. And then I'll finish the episode with new information I found and then give you my final theory of what I think may have happened to Garrett Phillips. So beginning our story, we start out around 4.30pm on a cold rainy afternoon on October 24, 2011 in Potsdam, New York. 12-year-old boy Garrett Phillips is hanging out with friends and classmates playing a pickup basketball game after school. This is when Garrett's mother, Tandy Cyrus, calls Garrett and tells him to get home to start on his homework. 
Garrett then proceeds to skateboard home from the Potsdam Middle School. He's then seen passing by one of the security cameras outside of Potsdam High School, which was right next door to the middle school Garrett was playing basketball at. Garrett then leaves the high school property and then proceeds down Cottage Street, where then the Potsdam Hospital security cameras now record Garrett skateboarding by. And this is actually the last time we see Garrett Phillips alive. Garrett did not have far to go that day, and I think the estimated time of travel for Garrett that day was right around six minutes before he would arrive home after he left school property. Garrett came home to his apartment right at about 5 p.m. on the day of the murder. Garrett's apartment building was located at 100 Market Street and was only a few blocks away from where he had just left school. Garrett lived in an old brick apartment building and lived there with his mother, Tandy Cyrus, and his younger half-brother, Aaron Collins, at which both were not home at this time. A few minutes later after Garrett arrived home is when the neighbors heard a loud crash and heard a child say what they heard like no or help. At this time, Marissa Vogel and her and her fiancé, Sean Hall, were in the process of eating dinner and also were just so happening to be watching the popular crime show, Dexter. Marissa then decides to knock on the apartment door 4D, where they just heard the noises coming from. After she knocked on the door to check on the apartment, she then heard what sounded like a lock clicking from behind the door. After being completely freaked out and now concerned, she went back to her apartment and fiancé. They said they waited a few minutes after what they had heard, and then decided to call the police at 5.07 p.m. Potsdam Police, Dispatcher Schneider. Hi, um, my name is Marissa Vogel, and I have something I'm not sure if I should call or not. I thought I heard um, some screaming, like no and help, a couple of times. So I knocked on their door, and I heard the lock click. And I'm, I know this sounds really paranoid and stuff, but I figured I'd call just in case. Where do you live? Sorry, 100 Market Street, North Country Manor Apartment. It sounded like something fell, and then it was either no or help. So, it was, it was a little weird. Okay, I'll have somebody check on it. Alright, that was the actual call that was made by Marissa Vogel to the Potsdam police that afternoon. Dispatch then sent out a call and Officer Mark Wentworth responded to the scene at Garrett's apartment right at about 5.17. Standing at the door, Wentworth says he hears nothing at first, so he knocks and calls out for the tenant, but no response. So then a few minutes later, Dispatch calls the landlord, Rick Dumas, for access to the apartment. In the meantime, at about 5.24, while Wentworth waits on the landlord for access, he then knocks again, and this time he thinks he hears movement inside the apartment. So he said he crouched down to look under the door where there was a space but sees nothing inside. Then at about 5.34pm, Rick Dumas, the landlord, arrived with the key to gain access into Garrett's apartment. Officer Wentworth and Dumas entered the apartment to find it in good condition with no sign of struggle. Garrett's ripstick and shoes were put away nicely by the door. And a ripstick is a skateboard-snowboard hybrid, and it's what Garrett used to skate home that day. Then after entering the apartment, the two men then proceeded to the main bedroom where they then found 12-year-old Garrett Phillips lying on his back with his feet together. His arms were down by his side and he had visible rug burns on his knees. Garrett was unconscious, barely breathing, and had no pulse. Officer Wentworth then proceeded to do CPR on Garrett. With little success, he then called for backup a few minutes later as Rick Dumas took over in assisting to revive Garrett. Soon, the ambulance and EMTs arrived at the scene and took over the duties of trying to save Garrett Phillips' life. Then at around 5.45pm, the ambulance had rushed Garrett over to the Potsdam Hospital, 
which was only a block and a half away from Garrett's residence, and again was the last place we saw Garrett alive on his way home from school. According to the landlord Rick Dumas, at around the same time the ambulance was escorting Garrett to the hospital, he was then able to find Tandy, Garrett's mother, at her younger son Aaron's basketball practice, and Dumas alerted her that something had happened to Garrett and to get to the hospital. As it grew closer to 6pm, the police dispatch had still not been able to get a hold of Tandy to give her the news of Garrett. Real quick, I just want to add one of those odd behavior moments during this case. Tandy had stated she had driven by their apartment building, which was on Market Street, the same time that Officer Wentworth's cop car was outside. Tandy said she thought nothing of it and proceeded to go pick up her youngest from daycare. I just found it odd that it didn't strike some type of curiosity from her. I understand people's levels of curiosity are all different, but being that she spoke with Garrett 45 minutes before she drove by their apartment, you would at least think she would have maybe stopped to check on him. So that evening of Garrett's murder at approximately 6.08pm, Garrett's mother surfaces and had called one of her ex-boyfriends and Sheriff Deputy John Jones and told him to meet her at the hospital and that something had happened to Garrett. After Tandy arrived at the hospital, the doctor informed her that Garrett was already in full cardiac arrest. Tandy then entered Garrett's hospital room accompanied by family members who consisted of her ex-brother-in-law, Brian Phillips, and Garrett's grandmother, Patricia Phillips. They sat by Garrett's bedside watching him lie there helpless as a machine continued to try and help Garrett breathe. Then as everyone in the room was praying for some type of recovery, at 7.18pm, Garrett Phillips coded and passed away. Later on, it was concluded in the autopsy report that Garrett Phillips had died of strangulation and suffocation, but there would be no official report until the following day after the murder. The death of this 12-year-old boy had already sparked conversation in the community, and rumors started to flow in Potsdam as to what happened to Garrett Phillips at his home on 100 Market Street. Garrett Phillips was said by family and friends to be a funny, athletic, and kind 12-year-old boy. He really enjoyed playing sports and was almost always doing something active. It was also said that he liked to play pranks on his brother as well. But yet the family couldn't think of anyone who might want to hurt Garrett that day. Or did they have someone particular in mind? Now I'm going to go back to the crime scene here just for a moment and kind of go into a little more detail about it. After the ambulance had taken Garrett to the hospital, the police started their investigation in the second-story apartment, and during their investigation they were photographing the third bedroom in the apartment, and an officer noticed that the window was open and the screen had been busted out. Investigating the window, they noticed that there was a set of fingerprints, and the drop from the window to the ground was right around 20 feet, and this was ultimately decided by the police that this is how the killer would eventually escape. Looking down from the window, there was a ledge on the left that the killer probably jumped onto, which was right around a 10-foot drop from the window, and this may have been the reason for the crack in the ledge that the police later found. Then the perpetrator jumped to the ground. They had slipped on the wet grass and left a smeared shoe print in the mud. I will be posting a picture of Garrett's window on Facebook, and this will give you an idea of where the killer escaped from. The police that day gathered the fingerprints from the window. I believe they took around 140 samples from the apartment to check for DNA. And in the end, I think they tested around 40 people for fingerprints and DNA. These were people that may have been close to Garrett or around Garrett at some recent point. 
During the time of the murder, there were two neighbors, Shannon Harris and Andrew Carranza, who were changing his tire in the back of 100 Market Street that day. In their statements, they told police they did hear noises what sounded like they had come from Garrett's window. But when they looked up, they didn't see anyone. Neighbors say they heard loud noises coming from the apartment where Phillips was found dead. Um, we were changing his tire, and we kept hearing this ripping noise. And 30 minutes after coming inside, we come to find out that the police were here. And it's kind of depressing knowing that maybe if we stayed down there five more minutes, the person would have been caught. I do believe whoever murdered Garrett Phillips left the scene after 5.20. So that was a quick interview that was made with Shannon Harris a few days after the murder. According to a police statement made by Andrew Carranza's father, Dan Carranza, who was also home on the day of the murder... Dan had thought he saw what he believed to be an African-American male in Garrett's window while Andrew and Shannon were fixing his tire. This is why at 524, when Officer Wentworth knocked on the door again, he thought he heard noises. And I think that these noises possibly came from the killer kicking out the screen in the window where they would eventually escape. Even though there were a few neighbors around at the time of the murder, no one saw the killer escaping from Garrett Phillips' apartment that day. And with no one seeing who escaped from his apartment that day, theories in the Potsdam community started to form. Some people were saying that someone broke into Garrett's apartment that day, and he came home and was at the wrong place at the wrong time. Others were saying that it was a couple kids that got rowdy with a game called Knockout, and something went wrong. Knockout was a game these kids played sometimes, and they would choke themselves and pass out. And I believe they called it auto-asphyxiation, which then gives them a high from doing this. But most people would point to the theories of the two ex-boyfriends that Garrett's mother had dated in the past. One we already know as John Jones, and the other ex-boyfriend went by the name of Nick Oral Hillary. But really only one of them would ultimately end up being investigated, indicted twice, and later brought to trial in this case. Now going back to the trailer here for just a second, you heard the name Hillary mentioned on numerous occasions, and he truly is the only one that was ever considered a suspect in this case. And as you can clearly tell, everybody seemed to have it out for Nick Hillary. Just a little quick backstory on Nick Hillary. Hillary was a good guy from what I understand. He won a Division Three national title in soccer. He was in the Army before he was honorably discharged. He then went and taught math, and then eventually Hillary became the head coach for men's soccer at Clarkson University, which is located at the southern tip of the town of Potsdam. Nick also has five children of his own with an ex-girlfriend, Stacia Lee. So, on the night of the murderer, Potsdam police lead investigator in this case, Mark Murray, wasted no time in trying to pinpoint this murder towards Nick Hillary. So the next morning, the DA's office lead investigator Dan Maynard called Mark Murray and wanted to kind of discuss the case and what had happened and if there was any suspects. And I do apologize, but this phone call is a little bit long, but it really does give you a general idea of how they only really wanted to try and go after one person, Nick Hillary. Hold on one second. Thanks. Dan, what's up? Marky. Just calling to say if you need anything. 
anything from our office, you know, don't hesitate calling. Okay. Yeah, I talked to Nicole twice last night. Oh, okay. Just updated as to what we had. Uh, what are you doing today? Oh, I'm just getting ready to take my granddaughter up to Colton School, and I just heard, I didn't know about it. I heard about it on the radio. And I I was, I'm sorry, man. I would have called you. It was kind of a, oh, that's uh, fine. a circus, though. You have um, the Colton suspects that were involved? Or is there just one? I don't know, Dan. It's, we, uh, the, the state police have been phenomenally great in assisting uh, Gary Snell. Obviously, him and both, his brother are both here. They both have strong ties to Parishville and the Phillips family, so they were able to I talk to Gary Lee last night, and we got some some strong feelings about certain people um, or one person. But there there were some some interviews that kind of that they they did last night to kind of cut off the heads of any accusation that some kids were with them and stuff. So it's looking we we need that autopsy today, and we need the cause of death. But there's one person in particular that we want to talk to. So. Found uh, beaten up somewhere in Bob's Uh the, the short story is, uh, we went to the the house for the neighborhood of Thud, and a, you know, like almost like heard someone faintly say like "help" or "stop," maybe, or heard a, a, like someone fell on the floor or something like a thud. Knocked on the door, and the door clicked lock. We got there, couldn't get the door open. Got the building uh, supervisor over, or the maintenance guy over, as quick as possible, and locked the door. And went and found him unresponsive and uh, and not breathing. So I took him to the, to the hospital. He was pronounced. Later, they secured the, the scene, which is you know, really good work on McCarger and Wentworth's part. Yeah. And they found the back window of the apartment. You know, you know, North Country Manor, right? Know where what is? North Country Manor. Yes. The, the the main building, the brick building. If you go up those front stairs, it's there's two apartments upstairs. One on the right, one on the left. Well, they're in the the one on the left. The back window on the left was uh, open about halfway. The screen was forced out, and the blinds were all fucked up. Someone had jumped from the second story, and there was a big gouge mark where they landed in the grass. And there's there's just no way, the more I'm thinking about it, we'll, we'll know more with the medical autopsy, but there's no way someone jumped, that he jumped out the window and crawled back up the, the stairs no. to die. So somebody somebody was in there with him. You know, there was a theory that, you know, the kids were in there forcing around, fucking around, and something happened, and they freaked out and left. And there's other theories about the does, other um, does the mother have a boyfriend? Yeah, well, she did. That's because what, that's um, what we're last night, my, my granddaughter got a call. She spent the night here last night because her mother had to go to the hospital today. And the uh, Phillipses are related to one of my sister-in-laws who's married to a Phillips. And uh, Olivia got a call from one of her cousins that said that uh, this 12-year-old boy had been killed by his mother's boyfriend. Now, where that came from, I have no idea. Yep, that's the, that's the rumor. Okay, well, that um, at the time, I dismissed it thinking I doubt anything like that happened. Uh, uh, I don't know where that's coming from. That's coming from the Phillips side, apparently. Yep, it is. And that's, that's, the, that's what we're looking at. Okay. Yeah, if you need subpoenas or anything you need at all. I, I am going to need some, Dan, actually, uh, okay. like us right now. Can we just pop down this morning? I'm going to take her to school right now. Yeah, if you don't mind, okay. come on up. Uh, I got some phone numbers and stuff. Okay, I'll be down in 20 minutes. Okay, thanks. Okay, bye. Shortly after that phone call, Tandy Cyrus went down to the police station to speak with lead investigator Mark Murray about Garrett's murder. Tandy was strangely accompanied with her ex-boyfriend, John Jones, during this interview. There were a few other police officials sitting in on the interview, and one other person who was Tandy's second husband and her son Aaron's father, Casey Collins. 
I found it to be a little strange that Tandy had two of her ex-lovers sitting in on the interview that was about the murder of her son. Being that they are ex-lovers, I just think it would have been more appropriate to interview her separately from both of them. Both these men weren't Garrett's biological father, and in most cases they would be top of the list of suspects. Not to direct guilt towards anyone, but the whole process was very strange. During this interview, the group of people that were all in the room basically had come together and, and began a Get Nick Hillary task force. After Tandy was done being questioned about the day of the murder, investigator Murray started to investigate Nick Hillary. Murray showed up to one of Nick Hillary's games that he was coaching and videotaped him walking around to see if he had any limp from any type of physical injury, such as jumping out of a 20-foot window. And I've seen the video footage, and there is a 0% limp that is in this video footage of Nick Hillary. But I guess it was enough for Murray to convince someone to let them get a search warrant and call Nick Hillary down to the police station the following day, two days after the murder. So now two days after the murder, Nick is down at the Potsdam police. He's told that he's going to be asked about the roster of Garrett's classmates, but it was anything but that. It completely turned into an interrogation. They had the search warrant, so then they stripped Nick down completely naked and took photographs of him to see if he had any type of physical injuries. The greatest thing that Nick Hillary did during this search is deny and comply. Hillary was not a dumb guy, and he knew what the consequences would be if he retaliated in any type of way. Nick Hillary was completely targeted from the get-go. He'd become a suspect in Garrett's murder mainly because he was the ex-boyfriend of Garrett's mother at the time, but he was also being targeted for being black in the town of Potsdam, which at the time was 95% white. Also, Sheriff Deputy John Jones had dated Tandy before Nick, and Jones wasn't happy about their relationship one bit. Enough to the point that Jones supposedly sent Nick threatening text messages, showed up to Nick's home to confront him about Nick and Tandy's relationship, and someone even keyed Nick's car, and he believes it to have been Jones. Even after they had stripped him naked and took photos of him, they sent him home in a hazmat suit after the interrogation. And I do believe Nick said that he didn't even have his wallet, keys, or any ID when he left the police station. I personally feel through this whole process of Nick's interview that they were really just trying to push his buttons and make him crack. And the smartest thing he did was just continue to comply even though he had done anything wrong. So before all this started, Tandy and Nick had met in a bar in 2010. They eventually decided to move in with one another. Inside their home, Nick had one daughter of his own and Tandy had her two boys that lived there as well. Nick and Garrett apparently did not get along. Nick was strict with him, and it was also said that Nick would also scold him at times for using racial remarks in his presence. According to Garrett's uncle Brian Phillips, Garrett and Nick butted heads, and Brian did not agree with how Nick was trying to raise the boys, so it was obvious there was a dislike that more than one person had for Nick Hillary. The supposed toxic relationship between Garrett and Nick started to take wear on Tandy. After she had enough and saw that Garrett was no longer happy, the couple mutually decided that it was better if Tandy and the boys moved out and got their own place, and this is how Garrett's family ended up at 100 Market Street. Nick was also the one that helped them move into their new place, and at one point he did have a key, but Tandy even stated Nick gave it back before the murder. Police even searched everything of Nick's after the murder and found nothing that would give Nick access to Garrett's apartment. Even though Tandy and the boys had moved out, Nick and Tandy were still civil at this point. So we now know it that Nick and Tandy's dating relationship was no more. 
We also know that Nick has been the only one that has been considered a suspect in Garrett's murder. The Potsdam police now had Hillary's DNA and fingerprints, but I think a surprise to many, it came back with no match to the crime scene. I think right away this is great news for Hillary, and this would for sure exclude him from being a suspect. Well, I was wrong, and this is why. The police had obtained footage from the high school on the day of the murder, and Nick Hillary's car was seen parked in the high school parking lot, the same time that Garrett ripsticks by on his way home. On the high school security cameras, you then see Nick leaving the parking lot and take a left, only seconds after, and the same way that Garrett Phillips went home. Nick's alibi that day was that he had driven by his assistant coach's house, Ian Fairley, to see if he was home. Ian Fairley actually only lived a few blocks away from Garrett's apartment at the time of the murder. Then Nick said he decided to drive home to talk to his daughter Shauna about what they would be having for dinner that evening. And Nick said he was home between 4.55pm and 5.15pm. He then left his house again and arrived back to Ian Fairley's house at 5.21pm, only for a few moments. Then the two said they both left Ian Fairley's residence and went to the office, then later coached soccer practice at 6pm that night. Nick's daughter Shauna and Ian Fairley were the two alibis Nick Hillary had on the day of the murder. Now, the DA's office and Potsdam police have who they think is Hillary on camera going the same direction as Garrett Phillips leaving the high school property that afternoon. Only problem is that in the security footage, the police couldn't make out who was driving or what the license plate number was on the back of the vehicle. Therefore, the police didn't have definitive proof that it was Hillary driving that vehicle. Being that there was no proof of Hillary being at the crime scene and no proof of Nick being in the vehicle that day, the police had nothing and Garrett's case would go cold. Well, it's been nearly two years since 12-year-old Garrett Phillips was killed in Potsdam. Well, no arrests have been made yet. The family holds on to hope that one day the person responsible will be brought to justice. Um, one time I think he loved everybody, do anything for anybody. <laughs> All I would really ask uh, the people is to still keep putting little clips in the paper, keeping the pressure on so that it's just not, you know, left on somebody's desk. So that was a news clip with Garrett's mother, Tandy Cyrus, and his uncle, Brian Phillips. At this point in time, we're now around two and a half years after Garrett's murder, and still there has been no killer found. And there was a new election for the district attorney position in St. Lawrence County for the town of Potsdam. Nicole Duvet was the district attorney at the beginning of this case, and up to this point, Duvet felt there wasn't enough evidence to try and indict Hillary on murder charges. Unfortunately for Hillary, Duvet was beat out for district attorney position by a woman named Mary Rain. Rain pretty much won the district attorney election by promising the public that she would find Garrett's killer in this case. But she turns out to be pretty crooked, even with some misprosecutorial conduct, and Rain would even later be disbarred for two years for her unethical action in other cases. North Country tonight, where former St. Lawrence County DA Mary Rain has been barred from practicing law for the next two years. The former district attorney is well known for her prosecution of the 2014 kidnappers of two young Amish girls, and more recently, the murder trial of Oral Nick Hillary. So in the meantime, after two and a half years of being considered a murder suspect, Hillary had decided that he had had enough and filed a civil lawsuit against the town of Potsdam for reasons of character defamation, discrimination, and there were other reasons, but they were later thrown out by the judge. During the process of this lawsuit that was filed by Hillary, 
Nick was then deposed on January 20th of 2014 by the town of Potsdam's defense lawyer. This to me ends up being a critical part in this case as Hillary is being deposed because the defense lawyer asked him many questions of Nick's whereabouts on the day of the murder and Nick responds by putting himself in his car on the high school security cameras on the day of the murder. So for the first time the police were able to prove that Hillary was in fact driving his vehicle on camera at the high school on the day of the murder. During the deposition, the one puzzling part for me was when Nick was being deposed, they had asked him if he remembered being at Ian Fairley's house that afternoon, and his response was, I don't recall. It certainly raised a red flag for me with Hillary, I just thought that was a pretty big piece of information for him to forget, being that Ian Fairley was one of his alibis that afternoon. After the deposition was completed, Hillary had now given the DA's office enough information that Rain was then able to get a grand jury to indict Nick Hillary on May 15, 2014. Hillary spent 70 days in jail before he made bail and was once again a free man. The judge for the first indictment decided that there was a lack of evidence and some misprosecutorial conduct along the way, so the indictment was dismissed and thrown out. Then months later, in November of 2014, District Attorney Mary Rain said at a press conference that she was going to get Hillary re-indicted for a second time and she would actually live up to her word because on January 21, 2015, Nick Hillary was indicted for a second time of second-degree murder of Garrett Phillips. Still at this point, the DA's office had no physical evidence that tied Hillary to this murder. It was all circumstantial. His bail was set around $150,000 and Nick was able to make bail, but was not allowed to travel outside of the St. Lawrence County area. Hillary was then given a great defense team that was funded by Sarah Johnson, who was responsible in helping make films such as The Green Inferno and Birdman. The mother of 12-year-old Potsdam murder victim Garrett Phillips calls another postponement of his accused killer's trial frustrating. The February 16th murder trial of Oral Nick Hillary has been postponed indefinitely. The term, third time this has happened. Phillips was found dead in his mother's apartment in October of 2011. Quite honestly, I feel like... The trial was delayed after Hillary's attorneys expressed concern over whether the prosecution had turned over all relevant DNA evidence. So then finally an official trial date was set for September 6 of 2016 and Rain decided to add another successful district attorney to her team and his name was William Fitzpatrick. Fitzpatrick was a successful district attorney in the state of New York. He came to help with this trial and was also very fixated on putting Hillary behind bars. Once again, there was no physical evidence to connect Hillary to the crime. I'm personally not a huge fan of Fitzpatrick, and if you watch the documentary Who Killed Garrett Phillips, you'll certainly see why. The man should have received a daytime Emmy for his closing arguments. All he had was a story he created around circumstantial evidence. But just to make this trial a little bit more interesting, Hillary and his defense team then decided that he was going to motion for a bench trial. A bench trial is where the jury is taken out of the courtroom and the final decision is to be made only by the judge. I thought this was definitely a smart move on Hillary's part knowing that he may not get a fair trial being that Potsdam is a small town, predominantly white, and his name had already been ruined in the public eye. Judge Katina was now the one person who would be able to decide Hillary's fate. So as the trial goes on, the defense finds out that there was a possible eyewitness that day of the murder that the prosecution did not disclose to the defense. 
The possible eyewitness was a man named Gregory Brown, who said he was walking down the street just outside Garrett Phillips' apartment about 10 to 15 minutes before Garrett would arrive home. Brown also states that he saw ex-boyfriend and sheriff deputy John Jones walking into Garrett's residence 10 to 15 minutes before the murder would take place. Gregory Brown at the time of the trial was a convicted rapist and a felon, so unfortunately was not really considered a credible witness to the prosecution. After the defense had talked with Brown, they decided that they weren't going to call him into the courtroom as a witness, but the defense did mention that there was some evidence that they turned over to the police that may help with this case. So I'm definitely going to revisit Gregory Brown here in a little bit because I do think he plays a big part in one of my own personal theories. Also, while conducting my research, I found this court document that is called an order to show cause. And basically what this is, it's the defense asking the prosecution to hand over any type of withheld evidence. From what I got out of this document is the defense had asked the prosecution to give them surveillance from the hospital cameras from the hours of 3 to 6 o'clock on the day of the murder. And the prosecution would only give them one minute of footage. Additional photos weren't being disclosed of the crime scenes. There was 842 lead sheets and only 22 of them have been disclosed to the defense. Seeing this document made me think Hillary was even more innocent than before. And to me, this also shows that there is possible evidence that had either been thrown out or covered up and never disclosed. The trial then lasted for about two weeks after Fitzpatrick and Rain had tried everything they could to convict Hillary of Garrett's murder. And then on September 28, 2016 at 10 a.m., Judge Felix Katina had come to a decision. Please be seated, ladies and gentlemen. Good morning and welcome back to St. Lawrence County Court. This is a continuation of the people of the state of New York against Oral Nicholas Hillary, indictment number 2015-015. The matter was scheduled this morning for the court to deliver its verdict. Mr. Hillary, if you'll please rise. Defendant was indicted on January 19, 2015 for the October 24, 2011 murder of Garrett Phillips. A trial was had before this court sitting without a jury over the course of three weeks. The case against the defendant is entirely based upon circumstantial evidence. Because of this, the court must review the evidence in this case under a rigorous standard. Accordingly, it is the judgment of this court that as to the charge of murder in the second degree as charged in the indictment, the defendant, Oral Nicholas Hillary, is found not guilty. There having, there having been an acquittal, the court shall enter an order pursuant to section 16050 of the criminal procedure law. Bail is exonerated and the defendant is released. Ladies and gentlemen, this court is adjourned. Thank you. Today I want to express my gratitude to my entire legal team, to my entire supporters, my entire family, my teammates, all my friends, and thanking Judge Katina for making the right decision. So now with Hillary being acquitted of second-degree murder of Garrett Phillips, that must mean that our killer was still out there. And there was only one other guy that people really talked about and looked at as a person of interest in this case. And it was Sheriff Deputy and Tandy's other ex-boyfriend, John Jones. Jones had dated Tandy previously for a few years up until 2010. After their breakup, Tandy and Nick were now dating, and on January 23rd of 2011, Tandy decided to file a complaint to the police about John Jones harassing her 
and even fearing for the safety of her children as well. Tandy had even listed specific incidents which led up to this complaint. There were four separate copies of this complaint that were individually signed and notarized, and then sent to four different people. This was Jones's response to Tandy's complaint that was shown on the documentary. I didn't get the statement directly. I got it indirectly from my boss. And I read it, and I said to my boss, I go, that's not Tandy's writing. And it was typed. And he's like, how do you know that? I go, because... Tandy doesn't know the definition of some of these words in here. I go, so there's no way that uh, she wrote this. And uh, he's like, well, that's interesting. I said, I go, we'll find out someday who, who wrote this. I go, because Tandy didn't. So the complaint had been filed 10 months before Garrett's death, and later on Tandy actually recants her statements towards Jones, and she claims Hillary made her do it, but I personally feel that to be false given the history Jones had with Tandy. It was said that Jones once physically pushed Tandy during an argument. One time Jones put all of Tandy's personal belongings outside their home due to an argument they had had, and Jones even tried to sue Tandy for unpaid utility bills when they lived together. Jones claims he had a great relationship with Garrett when they all lived together, but it's hard to believe being that Garrett is no longer with us and unable to verify if this is true or not. There was obviously jealousy with Jones towards Nick and Tandy's relationship, but was it enough motive for a man to become involved in a murder of a 12-year-old boy? As I was doing my research on this case, I was listening to the Garrett Phillips episode on a podcast called Trace Evidence. I noticed at the beginning of the episode that the host mentions that Jones and Garrett may have been seen having a conversation on the sidewalk before he went home. Though there is no actual proof of this conversation, oddly enough, a technical manager for Capital Region, B-O-C-E-S, employer Christopher Baxter said in court that he installed four security cameras on Potsdam High School from which video evidence used at trial was taken. The prosecution said that the video evidence was taken from that camera in combination with other recordings and testimony that would prove Hillary's guilt. Well, we all know that not to be true since Nick Hillary was acquitted of Garrett's murder. So was there something on those tapes that someone didn't want anyone else to see? And an even bigger question, what was John Jones's alibi? And where was he in the moments leading up to Garrett's murder? In Jones's statements to the police, his alibi that day was that he was on a conference call at his office at about 3.30 p.m. on the day of the murder, and then he said the conference call ended at about 4.45 p.m. Then Jones said he left his office and drove to his credit union to make a payment on his truck. He said he made the payment at the credit union and spoke to the manager for a few moments, and then Jones left the credit union and returned home. The hospital surveillance had Jones's house on camera, which was directly across the street, and they were able to see Jones pull into his driveway on the day of the murder at about 4.52 p.m., 29 seconds before our victim, Garrett Phillips, ripped sticks by. About 15 minutes later after Jones arrived home, the hospital surveillance footage then shows someone coming out of Jones's house walking a dog at the exact same time that Garrett's neighbor Marissa Vogel was placing the phone call to 911. Then minutes later, Jones said that he arrived home from walking a dog and once inside, he then began working on his taxes. According to a lot of people in their surveillance footage, you can't really make out John Jones's face in that video. So there was some discrepancy that it may have not been him because you can't tell. But it turns out that it was just more evidence to help exclude him as a possible suspect in this case. 
From what I understand, there were people that witnessed Jones at these places, at these times, so up until this point, his alibi does check out. The police did say they collected fingerprints and DNA from Jones, but nothing came back with a match from the crime scene. Also, the Potsdam police had decided to take photos of Jones's legs, feet, hands, and arms to show that there were no injuries to his body. What's strange about these photos that the Potsdam police took of Jones is that they didn't include Jones's face in any of them. They literally stripped Nick Hillary completely naked and took pictures of him, including his face, in numerous photos. Nobody asked for the photos that were taken of Jones, and I think this was another way for the Potsdam police to help try and exclude Jones from becoming a possible suspect. Since Hillary had been acquitted of Garrett's murder, and Jones wasn't even being considered a suspect by police, there seemed to be no other suspects, and Garrett's murder would remain unsolved. So as I continued to try and find more information on this case, I had basically decided that there wasn't much more I could find to help me conclude who may have killed Garrett Phillips. Being that I do have a stubborn mind and now a very strong curiosity towards this case, I continued on and did stumble across an article that did spark some new interest for me. The article contains new detail about witnesses that may have more information about Garrett's death. So the article I found is called New Leads Surface in Phillips Murder, and it was published on March 8, 2019, and it was written by W.T. Eckert on the NNY360 website that is powered by the Watertown Daily Times and Northern New York newspapers. So I'm going to summarize the article for you, and it'll also be located in my sources as well. Basically, this article talks about some inconsistent statements that were made by Garrett's next-door neighbors at 100 Half Market Street about their whereabouts on the day of Garrett's murder. The Murphys were the family that lived at 100 Half Market Street, and in the Murphys' statements to the police, during the time of the murder, Lori, the mother, was at work. Sean, her eldest son, was also at work. His younger brother, Brandon, said he was at home until around 4 p.m., and their dad, James Murphy, said he took Brandon to a neighboring town Norfolk to help a friend cut wood around 3.30. Also, supposedly there was a cousin of the Murphys that was also at 100 Half Market Street that day. His name was Amos Singleton, he was 15 at the time, and according to the article, Amos fit the physical description of Nick Hillary. Also providing statements that day was Brandon's girlfriend at the time, Devin Wilmart. And she said Brandon met her at Potsdam High School at 3.30. Then Devin said her mother, Laurel, picked them up from school and Brandon was at their house until 11 p.m. that night. So it's fair to say that Brandon couldn't have been in three places at once. But now it's believed that later on, Devin recanted her statements from that day. There's been many attempts to contact Devin, but all were unsuccessful. So that leaves James as Brandon's only alibi now. But there's parts of James' statements that raised a red flag for me. James couldn't recall if it was dark or if police were present when they arrived back at Brandon's residence on the day of the murder. The fact that the Murphys didn't report seeing any police activity at 100 Market Street on the night of Garrett's death was surprising and unusual, especially due to the large police presence from multiple agencies surrounding the area. After reading this article and applying the clues that I've put together, my personal opinion is Brandon never left 100 Half Market Street that day. After reading this article, I then Google searched the different family members of the Murphys and found information on only Brandon and his dad James. James had sadly passed away in 2013 due to complications to his body from a car accident in the late 90s. 
but Brandon's search ended up being another story. I found an article on North Country's website They covered a lot of the Garrett Phillips case and this article about Brandon is dated from September 28th of 2013 and just 11 days after his father's passing and it looks like Brandon had a little bit of a run-in with the law. So almost two years after Garrett's death, Brandon was now 19 and he was charged with misdemeanor sex abuse for sexual contact with a person under the age of 14, according to state police. Brandon was also charged that day with tampering with evidence, a felony, pot possession, and selling pot, also a felony. So it looks like Brandon had got himself into quite some trouble, and then you add that with some inconsistent statements that were given to the police days after Garrett's murder, and it starts to raise a little cause for concern. Officer Wentworth was the one who responded to Garrett's 911 call, and he was at Garrett's apartment by around 5.15 that early evening. Since James Murphy doesn't remember if it was day or night, and doesn't remember any police activity when they arrived home, then I think that possibly puts them back at Brandon's residence next door to Garrett's apartment if they had even left before 5.15 that day. So as I sat here and tried to process all the new information I found, I was able to find out that Market Street that Garrett lived right off of at the time is a pretty main street in town. And Market Street goes right down the middle of Potsdam. And it being 5 o'clock on a weekday, you would have to think to oneself that it was most likely rush hour traffic at this time. And someone would have had to see our killer running down the street. But what if our killer didn't have to run far after they made that jump from Garrett's window? Also, I do have to point out that during this time of the murder, it was October. School was in session, which adds about another 8,000 people to Potsdam's area due to the number of colleges that surround the town. I found an audio clip on one of the North Country Public Radio's website pages, and it shows you what Market Street outside of Garrett's apartment building is like around 5 p.m. during the week. And this webpage also provides a timeline and map following the events during and after Garrett's murder. ...o'clock around the time the murder took place. Rush hour here on Market Street, on Potsdam's busiest street. The police's theory is that someone entered Garrett's apartment, strangled him, and then escaped by jumping out the second-story window that's right here tucked around the back corner of the building. Now, I look around, and I can see one, two, three houses, and then a big apartment building, another apartment building with dozens of windows. There are tons of people who could have seen someone fleeing the murder scene, and yet police found no eyewitnesses who did. Also, from the same North Country Public Radio webpage, I noticed that the Potsdam police had basically slowed down traffic on Market Street one day to pass out flyers to see if anyone had any information or saw anything that could help in their investigation in finding Garrett's killer. There were about six neighbors that lived around Garrett that may have saw something that day, but strangely enough, only three out of the six neighbors were ever spoken to. Also, I found that there was a few instances where people called the Potsdam police because they had some information that may have helped in Garrett's case, but it always seemed that the police never followed up with any of these possible leads. So at this point, I had decided that I had found all the information I could, and I was going to go ahead and watch the documentary one more time to see if I had missed anything that may be of any type of importance. And there was something that really caught my eye in the second part of the series, and it was the segment about the possible eyewitness Gregory Brown that I spoke of earlier in this episode. 
Hillary's defense had taken some notes from the interview with Brown during Hillary's trial, and in the documentary they posted some of those notes in the background of a scene. So I paused the documentary, and at the moment the notes were in the background of the screen, and as I was reading them, I noticed that Gregory Brown said that he had witnessed John Jones walking into a brown home on Market Street about 10 to 15 minutes before Garrett would arrive home. Well, I had been under the impression that Gregory Brown had seen John Jones walk into Garrett's apartment building. Well, Garrett's apartment on the outside is made of brick, so I decided to Google map 100 Market Street where Garrett's apartment was, clicked on the street view, and as I clicked to look at Garrett's residence straight on, I noticed next door to the left of Garrett's building is a brown house with the address of 100 and a half Market Street the same address from the witnesses in the article with the inconsistent statements. Being that Brown is a convicted felon, he was never considered to be very creditable by some, but then I started to wonder myself, why didn't the defense use Brown as a witness? So after thinking about it, I have in my own opinion, I think the defense didn't use what Gregory Brown had said he saw, because it states that Jones went into a Brown house which would then eliminate the possibility of Jones ever being in Garrett's apartment that day. Hillary's defense team wasn't there to try and convict someone else of Garrett's murder. They were there to prove Nick Hillary's innocence. So I feel that helping eliminate Jones from the murder scene would then leave the only other possible suspect, which was Hillary, and in return, I think Brown's testimony may have worked against the defense in the judge's final ruling. Now at this point in the episode, I would like to go ahead and start concluding everything and provide my main theory about what I think may have happened to Garrett Phillips. Being that there has never been a murderer found guilty in this case, that means we have to continue to look at any possibility that may have occurred on the day of Garrett's death. In my own opinion, I feel that all this happened in a failed attempt to try and frame Nick Hillary for the murder of Garrett Phillips. Though my theory is based on circumstantial evidence, there are also a lot of facts from this case that I incorporated to fill the holes in my theory. So why frame Nick Hillary? It's very apparent John Jones didn't want Nick around, Garrett didn't want Nick around, and the Phillips family didn't want Nick around. And they all seem to have their reasons why, but I think race played the biggest role in all of this. Again, Potsdam was 95% white, and I do feel certain people in this case weren't particularly fond of a black man being the head of Tandy's household. With that being said, I'm going to start my theory at the same time and place where I started Garrett's story leading up to his murder. So after Tandy, Garrett's mother, had called Garrett around 4.30pm on the day of the murder, I believe that before he left school property that Garrett did possibly have a conversation with our person of interest, John Jones. And I do say this because of the missing surveillance footage from the Potsdam High School that day. Well, at this time, Jones had said he was on a conference call until 4.45 p.m. Then he left to make a payment on his truck at the Adirondack Credit Union, where he would speak to the manager for a few moments and then leave to return home right around 4.52 p.m. That leaves Jones seven minutes to drive from 22 Depot Street, where Jones worked at the time, to the credit union in rush hour traffic, passing through four stoplights on the way, and having a small conversation with the bank manager. Also, I was able to speak with an actual Potsdam resident about their rush hour traffic during the week, and this is what she had to say. Hello, sorry it took so long to reply. I'm bad with time and distance, so I didn't want to tell you the wrong answer. I would say that the traffic is pretty bad during rush hour. It could take anywhere near 15 to 30 minutes just across town. 
There are quite a few red lights, and I hope this helps. After finding out this information, I'm able to say that his 7-10 minute commute from work to the bank and then home that day wasn't impossible, but certainly a little tight on time if you ask me. I think our person of interest may have left after speaking with Garrett and proceeded to the Murphy's residence, and this is when our possible eyewitness Gregory Brown says he sees Jones entering 100 Half Market Street. Inside the house, I personally feel that access was given to Brandon and Amos to let themselves into Garrett's apartment before Garrett would arrive home. I say this because our person of interest had a key to Garrett's apartment during the time of the murder that he later handed over to the Potsdam police during this investigation. Also, Jones was supposedly seen making a copy of a key in September around one month before Garrett would be murdered. Jones was actually asked on the stand about a duplicate key during Hillary's trial, and he responded that he may have done so, but does not remember. So I feel that either both Amos Singleton and Brandon Murphy were in Garrett's apartment at the same time, or Amos was in there alone, because he in fact fit the physical description of Nick Hillary, and Amos was a minor at the time and wouldn't be in the system for fingerprints or DNA. Thus is where I think the framing comes into play. Also, I do have to say that Hillary was invited out for drinks by Tandy and then back to her apartment on 100 Market Street exactly one month before Garrett was murdered. So this is why earlier in the episode, I said that it came back to probably being a pretty big surprise to most that none of Hillary's DNA was ever found in Garrett's apartment. So at this point, we would have someone who fits Nick's physical description access to Garrett's apartment and a strong possibility of Hillary's DNA in the same bedroom where Garrett's body was found. So had either someone saw a black man escaping from Garrett's window or Hillary's DNA was found in their apartment, combined with all the circumstantial evidence the prosecution had, Hillary would be behind bars as we speak. I think the whole plan to frame Hillary for the murder of Garrett backfired. And with no physical evidence or witnesses that day, they had nothing, and the prosecution tried everything they could to make Hillary seem like the killer. So, in concluding my theory on this case, I do feel that our person of interest somehow played a big role in the events leading up to Garrett's murder. And I do think Brandon Murphy and Amos Singleton are the missing links that connect everything in this case. The only problem with this case is that it doesn't seem that the DA's office, the Potsdam police, or even Garrett's family want to find the real truth of what happened to Garrett. So again, the main reason why I started this podcast was to get people's stories out there that need to be heard, and I hope this becomes a way for people to hear Garrett's story, and by hearing his story, again, it may lead into answering some unanswered questions. Again, being that there was so much evidence in this case, I hope I was able to give you a great idea of how this murder case has played out to this point. And please do feel free to comment on the episode and let me know what you thought of it. Again, I can be reached through Facebook at facebook.com slash drewcrime or at Twitter at hashtag drewcrime. And I can also be reached by email at drewcrimepodcast at gmail.com. And I do plan on releasing my next episode, and I will be giving you my own take on the unsolved murder of John Benet Ramsey. So thank you again, everyone, for tuning into my podcast. Please do join me for my next episode. And also a friendly reminder, love everyone, but trust no one. Until next time, I'm your host, Drew Van House, and this is Drew Crime. Drew Crime